You're listening to Simple Roots Radio, episode number 142. And today we're talking about how to boost a sluggish metabolism. Welcome to Simple Roots Radio with Alexa Sherm. Alexa believes that simplicity in life is the key to achieving true and lasting health. And now your host, Alexa Sherm. Welcome back to this podcast. As always, my name's Alexa, and this is the place to get healthy, live happy, and find more joy. Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, I am just blown away by how much this community has grown over the last few months, and I'm just like so ecstatic to be a part of your health journey. Now, I know there are so many other health podcasters and blogs out there, and you are just overwhelmed with mass amounts of information. So I want to make a promise to you, and my promise is to bring you the simplified, condensed, real-life version of what I believe health to be. And even what I want to do is take this to a whole new level, to not just make it about food and exercise, which is a very critical aspect of health, but to open the door to every other thing that is affecting our health. And that includes our mental health, our relationships, our financial status, our environment, relationships, and our spiritual health as well. So I want to open the door to all of those things. And this summer, we're going to dive headfirst into a lot of those outside things that are having a big inside influence on our body. And I can't wait to get started there. Of course, there's always going to be health sprinkled in, what you consider to be true health, I guess I should say, sprinkled in because it is Simple Radio and that's what we're all about. So again, thank you so much for being here. I hope that you find this podcast to be a wealth of information. And like I said, I would love for you to share this with your friends and family who haven't heard about Simple Radio. Get them on board and encourage them to join this community of like-minded people who are here to uplift and support and inspire and so much more. Just a few housekeeping things. I just want you to know that you can always find the show notes to every single episode over at the blog at simperitswellness.com. You can search for the podcast by their episode number. So you can do that by typing in simperitswellness.com backslash followed by the episode number. So for this, it's simperitswellness.com backslash 142. Again, I give all the show notes there additional information, some of my best resources, ideas and products about the topics, and even free handouts. So make sure you head on over there after every episode to check out what's new and what's happening over there. And while you're at it, I would love for you to join the email list here at Simperitz Wellness. Inside those emails, you're going to get more information about my own life, stories I have, things that I'm learning, products I want to share, and of course, recipes that I'm loving to eat. So to sign up, just head on over to SimperitzWellness.com Add your name and email address in the pop-up box and you will get on my email list. It's as simple as that. Also, as we approach this new series on anxiety and the mindset, I would love to hear your questions or your topic ideas that you would love for me to talk about here on Subroads Radio. So to send me those, just head on over to the website again and hit the contact button and type in any questions that you have or just reply to one of my emails on my newsletter series and I will get back to you right away. So again, thank you so much for being here. Sign up for the email list. Now today, we're going to get back into the last episode in the metabolism series. Now, if this is your first time listening, you're going to want to go back to the start of the metabolism series, which was episode number 130, the very first of January. And we have just powered through this massive metabolism series, hitting different topics like why you don't binge on broccoli, what your resistance brain has to do with health, why calories don't matter, 
five places you should never eat, and so much more. Like there's so many good episodes inside the metabolism series. Today is just a wrap up to all of that and really those basic tips that you need to know on how to fix a sluggish metabolism. And at the end, I'm gonna give my best tip of all in some questions that you can start to ponder in your own life to see if what you're doing is working or going to work and what changes you can make to make it stick for life. Because that's our goal, is not just to be another quick fix or another diet, but to help you find something that lasts. So stick around for the end where you're gonna get those questions and we're gonna help dive into, okay, is what you're doing working? What tips can you take away from this and actually implement into your life to see change? So stay tuned for that. But to get started, we're just going to break down metabolism one more time because I really want to clear the air on some of these myths that we've broken down. I know that there's a lot of them. I mean, we're in episode number 12 of the metabolism series, so there's been quite a bit to sift through. So let's just go back to the beginning and break down what is metabolism. So metabolism is technically derived from the Greek word metabol, which is Greek for change. Now, to define metabolism, it's all about power, from how it's acquired to how it's spent. And given this, many would define metabolism as a balance of catabolism, which is the breaking down of energy, and anabolism, which is the building up. This is also where people get the idea that calories in equals calories out is the best way to affect your metabolism. But we can't forget that there's a critical component to that equation that is missing, and that's caloric storing. And the storing is the aspect of the equation that makes all the difference and makes us so individualized, right? So if you've been trying to count calories or restrict calories or balance calories in your favor of weight loss, what you'll probably find is that it might work for a short period of time, some give an estimate of about two weeks before you hit your next plateau, only again to hit that plateau. And really what we find is long-term, Yes, calories matter, but are they the only factor in metabolism and health and losing weight? Absolutely not. Like, it's far from that. And one of the reasons is, is because we've left out this caloric storing, this individualized thing that's happening inside the body to the calories that you're consuming and the calories you're breaking down for energy, right? Everyone's body is doing a little bit different thing with that. And that's why it's not just about calories, but the type of calories, because we all know that you're going to break down and digest and store a cookie differently than you are some steamed broccoli, right? Like we don't, I don't need to tell you that. Just like we talked about in the episode, why you don't binge on broccoli, there's a different hormonal reaction, enzymatic reaction, neurotransmitter reaction that's happening between those two foods. So we know that it's not just about the calories, but about the type of those calories and the mindset in which you eat them and the environment you're in when you consume them. Like there are so many factors that go into that. And I'm going to break that down again, very simply into some basic tips that you can do to boost your metabolism. But let's be honest, as we've learned in this series, and as I'm already mentioning, metabolism isn't a simple process. In fact, it's one of the most difficult physiological processes to understand, and that's why there are probably so many misconceptions. 
So we have to stop looking at metabolism like an equation. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we have is that it's all an equation, right? We went from calories in equals calories out and creating this deficit in calories to just eliminating macronutrients in general. But we have to remember that metabolism is not an equation and it's not a science experiment. Instead, let's start looking at metabolism as a thermostat. It's a regulating system inside of our body that regulates all chemical reactions. It's a process of homeostasis at keeping us at our center. So again, it's not an equation, it's not a science experiment, but it's more like a thermostat. And that's why, how I want you to think about metabolism as we go through this and as you listen to all the other episodes in this series. So what does affect your metabolism? Of course, it's things like genetics, age, sleep, hormones, muscle mass, and even the size of your body. But if I had to give a real equation for metabolism and what causes weight gain, this is what it would be. It would be the modern lifestyle... <laughs> Your environment plus genetic predisposition equates to your likelihood of weight gain. So again, that's our modern lifestyle and our genetic predisposition that some people are just more predisposed to being heavier than other people. We know this, right? We can get really irritated with people who can stay skinny no matter what they eat, but that doesn't mean they're healthy either. So let's go back to the thermostat and the one big final point I want to break down when it comes to metabolism and what we can do about it, and that is the term metabolic advantage. You might have heard about this. It's kind of a controversial subject in the world of metabolism and health. Now, a lot of people want to define this, and again, coming from calories or this deficiency in calories versus this deficiency in macronutrients. What I mean by that is Um, at one end of the spectrum, you have people who say that calories don't matter at all, that it's more about carbohydrate density or the type of carbs. And if you eat low carbs, then you can eat as many calories as you want and you won't gain weight. So they have these people who will just toss out calories altogether and just say, no, 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 no. It's all about the macronutrients, especially carbohydrates. That's the problem with our metabolism. Then on the other hand, you have people who say that it's all about calories. And as long as you're in a negative energy balance, meaning you consume less calories than you burn, then you'll lose weight regardless of what type of calories those are. Now, don't get me wrong. I see positives on both sides of the spectrum. And I do think that calories matter as do macronutrients. But I think that there has to be a happy medium here. Like I think both ends of the spectrum are way off on what the idea behind metabolism is. And the confusion is they mistake the idea that calories matter with the idea that eating less and exercise more is an effective weight loss advice. Just like some would say eliminating an entire macronutrient is just as effective or more effective as that, right? Like they have these big box statements that they like to place on everyone and just assume that this is going to work for you. If you follow these rules, it's going to work. But over and over and over, this has been a monumental failure. Like over and over and over, we see people investing all of their hope on a diet that's based on calorie restriction or a diet that's based on macronutrient elimination. And I'm not saying that people haven't found results there. What I'm saying is long-term, we have to understand what works for our bodies, right? Great, it might work for your best friend. Great, it might even be working for you. But here's the deal. We have to figure out what is actually going to work long-term that you can sustain for the rest of your life. Because if you can't sustain it, it's not going to last. And that's the thing about diets that makes you slip up. Like even Whole30, I think it's a great foundation to stand on. But Whole30 only works when you're doing the Whole30, not 
30 days after when you've fallen back into your old ways? Like, what does that teach you about sustainability? Nothing, right? The same goes where I see a lot of people with calorie restriction is that your body can only maintain that for so long until you start to gain weight back and then you look at it as a failure and you kind of tumble back into your old patterns. The idea is how do we get ourselves out of these old patterns and into new healthy patterns that you could sustain for life? And spoiler alert, this is what you're going to learn at the end. It's all in the mindset of individuality. And we're going to talk about that coming up. So again, it's not that I believe that calories don't matter or aren't a factor in this, just like it's not a matter of me not believing that macronutrients don't matter or aren't a player in this. I believe that all of them are. But over the last 20 years, what we found is that research has shown that food intake and body fat regulation are primarily orchestrated by the brain. And this is the point that we miss. It's not just some simple equation that's happening inside the body, but it's orchestrated by an intense an intricate process that's happening inside the brain. And as you've listened over the last 12 podcasts, then you know that there is a lot of brain chemistry that's happening with metabolism. And of course, the brain gets this input from other body systems, right? But it turns out that the hypothalamus in particular and other regions of the brain play this really essential role in regulation of weight and body fat mass. This is where our weight set point is established. The set point is what creates that thermostat. So when we talk about metabolism not being an equation or not being a chemistry experiment, but being a thermostat, this is what it is. Metabolism is a homeostatic response in the body. It works to maintain an even healthy region of our body temperature, of our blood pressure, of our heart beating, of our breath rates, of our weight of our hormonal flow and all the things that go into that. That is our set point. And if we want to change our metabolism to be in favor of weight loss, then we have to look at changing our set point. And we won't get anywhere if we don't focus on our set point. It's why sometimes we do see these calorie deficit diets working and it's because they've actually lowered their set point. The problem with these diets is, is that most of the time people don't sustain them for long enough periods of time to actually create a change in their set point or they're doing it all wrong. Um, and so what we really want to do is establish a change in our set point. And remember, that's an individualized thing. So if you want to learn more about set point, you got to go back to episode number 115 where I break that down. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time here, even though I'm going to keep bringing it up. But go back and listen to that if you want to check it out. It talks all about weight set point, how to lower yours, what it means, all the things. But anyways, the set point. So our weight set point is mediated by two interactions, and it's between the pleasure and the reward-seeking centers and the homeostatic or energy-regulating systems. So we've learned a lot about this, again, in the series I know I keep telling you this, but you really got to go back and listen to those. But it's regulated. Like our set point has two regulating factors, these pleasure and reward-seeking systems and the homeostatic or energy-regulating systems. And these systems, these are influenced by all the things that we talked about over the course of the last 12 weeks. I'm going to break them down really, really quickly for you. So we're just going to kind of give an overview of how metabolism is affected, and then I'm going to give you the points, the big overarching points on how to fix this. So if you remember those two systems, the pleasure-reward-seeking systems and the homeostatic or energy-regulating systems, then we know all of these things are driven by hormones. And I like the word hormones because if we can figure out our hormones, we often can start to work with our body and see great change. 
But if we go all the way back to the beginning, we talked about one specific hormone that is really critical when it comes to our metabolism, and that is leptin. And what leptin does is it controls our feeding and underfeeding thermostat. So leptin is going to tell our body when weight loss is happening at an extreme rate, and it's going to slow our metabolism or increase our hunger. On the other hand, when we're overfed, then leptin is going to come in and tell our brain that we have plenty and to decrease hunger and cravings. So leptin is going to work with our body fat stores as they are at the set point that we are to maintain that. So it's going to control hunger and fullness based on our feeding and underfeeding and where our fat cells are. Now, there's a problem, though, is that many of us at a healthy weight have become leptin resistant, meaning our body is sending out leptin to tell it like, whoa, we have plenty of fat stores. The problem is, is it's not reacting in our brain, right? Like we're sending out leptin, but we're resistant to the signal. So someone's knocking at the door, but no one's answering. And that causes our body to continuously feed and overfeed because leptin isn't firing. So it's kind of like this misfire that's happening inside the brain, tricking it to make you believe that you're actually hungry and craving all the things when in fact your body has plenty of stores. It's just not recognizing it. Now, why does this happen? Of course, there's a lot of different reasons why, but a lot of the reasons is it's just an overworked system, right? When we have too much sugar and too much inflammation and our other hormones are out of whack and our cortisol and our stress levels are high, like it's just this whole hormonal cascade response that's happening and it's causing leptin resistance which often goes along with insulin resistance to happen inside of our body. But one big thing that we talked about in the episode of why you don't binge on broccoli is this modern food that's engineered to make us fat. And this has to do with our food reward system. So we have the homeostatic thing that's kind of being overtaken by this food reward system. And it's this idea that eating a rewarding food makes you want to eat more of it. And there are a number of factors that influence the reward of food. So some of these factors that food engineers study, like put tons of effort into studying to make processed foods taste so good and have such a high reward value food. Because remember, if food manufacturers can make it a high reward value food, what does that mean for them? You're going to buy it and buy it and buy it and eat it and eat it and eat it. It has become an addiction. So some of the things that they study is caloric density, the texture or what they would consider the mouthfeel, the content of fat and starch, simple sugar, salt, and free glutamate. And food engineers study these factors to make it have a high reward value. Now remember, high reward value foods are different than highly palatable foods. And there's a big difference. And this is one big point that I want you to know when it comes to this idea and this last big point that I want you to know. So if we describe or define a reward value, a reward value reinforces a particular behavior. So again, a high reward value food like chips or pretzels or cookies or ice cream, those things make us want to eat more. Like they've They've reached the reward centers in the brain and they can make us addicted to that. So reward centers often equate to addiction. On the other hand, palatability is defined as pleasure. It's just something that tastes good without it hitting the reward centers. So think about steak. For most people, you would say that it's a highly palatable food, right? It tastes good. Now, if you're a vegan, I'm sorry, that's not a good option. You could say a sweet potato, right? For most of us, a sweet potato tastes really good. It's sweet is in the name, right? Um, or fruit or a fruit smoothie, right? All these things are highly palatable, 
But how often do you see someone addicted to a steak or addicted to a sweet potato, right? Like you just don't see it. So something can be highly palatable. That doesn't mean it's highly addictive. However, high reward value foods are always addictive because it's having a different reaction inside your brain that's causing you to do different things. What we know about these high reward value foods is it tricks our body into just consuming more and more and more and more of it. Like we can't stop. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that our taste buds are another protective mechanism of our body to prevent us from overeating. But here's the thing. We know how to trick our taste buds even into overeating things. So just to give you an example, do you know Guy Ferrari um, who does the food challenges? Maybe that's not who does it. But you know, the person who goes around on Food Network to all these different places to eat around America. And sometimes they have food challenges, right? Um, if you go to Little Mom Pop's restaurant, sometimes it's like if you can eat this 10-pound burger in an hour, you can get a free t-shirt. We happen to be eating at an ice cream shop, and they had this massive ice cream sundae. And the idea was that if you could eat it all, then of course you got your name on the wall or whatever, something ridiculous that didn't merit actually eating all that. But anyways, he was about 20 minutes into eating this massive ice cream sundae, and most of us would think, well, It's ice cream. Like I could sit down and eat an entire container of ice cream and not stop, right? Like you think anyone could complete this challenge. But here's the safety mechanism of our body is that we can become exhausted. There's something called food exhaustion where our taste buds get exhausted from the taste of ice cream or whatever we're consuming a lot of it will lose its taste preference in your body, right? So like eating too much ice cream, you can actually start to like almost have the inability to continue because it starts to taste so bad. Now, what's interesting though, is if we start to do food pairing, then we know we can can get you to eat more of it. So what he did, and I feel like I'm not explaining this very well, but what he did during this ice cream challenge is that he actually ordered an order of fries and he ate some fries and then he'd go back to the ice cream because he knew that salt combined well with sweet to make you eat more. So we see a lot of food flavors coming together to actually increase the reward value of that food, allowing you to consume more of it. I mean, it's super fascinating stuff. You can look more about these food pairings on um, food eating websites, you know, like where they have all these contests to see who can eat the most hot dogs and whatever. Like they know these tricks. They know that there's food pairings that will help you to be able to finish whatever it is you're trying to finish in a reasonable amount of time. And if you don't eat those food pairings, you're never going to get through it. So he knew that the ice cream, like he wasn't even halfway through, but this large order of fries that he ate while he was eating the ice cream allowed him to finish all of that and get through it. Now, I'm sure it didn't feel very well at the end, but what we see is that reward value foods that are layered on top of each other allow you to eat even more, right? So that ice cream, he would have never been able to get through without the French fries, (laughs) Now, combining those together, you think, oh my gosh, like he just doubled it on top of each other. And that's what we often see happening is it's not just one thing you become addicted to, but it's a host of other things that allow that addiction to flow. So that's what reward value foods do is they enforce a particular behavior. And so how do we beat this, right? Like how do we work with this instead of against it and not just look at all health food as bland and boring? Here's the thing is that you have to remember that highly palatable foods 
often aren't high reward value foods. So we can see a lot of foods in nature and a lot of whole foods are actually really palatable for most people. And so it's not like you have to eat a whole bunch of bland food to get around overeating. It's just saying that you have to start choosing the right foods that actually provide the excitement for your taste buds and the enjoyment and the palatability of it, but you have to stay away from the high reward value foods or at least know those are things that you can tend to get addicted to. So again, high reward value foods often are all processed foods. Like it's, it's just what it is. We've created this based on the science of how our brain works and the addiction of it. Kind of a sad thing, I understand, <laughs> um, but they make a lot of money doing it, right? So again, eating whole food is one of the best ways to overcome that and to start balancing out that brain chemistry. And interesting about high reward value foods and the elimination of it, that is one of the best ways to reduce our set point. Outside of gastric bypass surgery and actually altering the stomach, the next best way that research has found to lower our weight set point or that thermostat is actually to get rid of the high reward value foods. Now, I'm not someone who's like, okay, you have to eliminate all these foods or focus on elimination. It's just a bad mindset. But we have to start understanding that high reward value foods are actually increasing our set point. And one great way to bring it back down to a normal or healthy weight set point is to get rid of them, right? To switch all of that processed food out for more whole foods. Of course, you can do it in the process. It doesn't have to be an all or none. But it's just to give you an idea that those are so, so, so powerful to our mindset. So let's get to the tips because I could go on and on about different facts with metabolism. So there's five big tips that I want you to think about when it comes to boosting your metabolism. The first one is cyclical rhythms. There's nothing else that you learn here from Some Fruits Radio. It's this. Our body thrives on rhythms. Now we have our circadian rhythm, which is really what we want to work with. And we do this through day and night cycles. We do this through with women with menstrual cycling. And everyone does this seasonally with the different cycles of the seasons. And so I'm very, very, very big proponent of cyclical rhythms. And what I mean by that is having natural rhythms to your day. We all do this anyways, but we try to, I think we kind of stuff them up with what we think we should be doing rather than the rhythms of our natural body. So we're going to talk about doing this at the end, but you really have to stop and start to understand your daily rhythms. What time do you like to go to bed? What time do you like to wake up? When do you get hungry in the morning? Not when do you think you should eat, but when are you first hungry? When do you feel good working out? Are you extra stressed after work? What helps to de-stress your body? Like knowing all the rhythms, what is your body craving? How is your skin? How is your mental health? Like we see that in different seasons. We know that people's mood is affected and their sleep cycles change, right? So we have very cyclical rhythms to our life. We have to start to tap into those because connecting with our cyclical rhythms, whether it's seasonally or menstrually or even daily, we know is the best way to tap into our circadian rhythm, which is the number one factor of our metabolism. Our circadian rhythm is basically our wake and sleep cycles. And what we know is that every cell in the body has a circadian rhythm because it's that important. And if we start honing into these circadian rhythms and knowing that they're there for great value, then we can see our metabolism really start to get the boost. So basically what all of this to say is we need to sleep more, right? That should be one of the biggest points is that we have to put a focus and an emphasis on rest and creating healthy circadian rhythm. 
So some things you can do is intermittent fasting, which I talk about all the time, cyclical fasting. So this is something I'm getting into more, which I'm going to talk about later on in a podcast, but it's basically adding in one 24 to 36 hour fast a week and doing that on a cyclical basis. Also eating at the same times every day, stop eating at the same time, kind of exercising, getting into a cyclical rhythm of exercise. And like I said, seasonally, eating seasonally, living seasonally, and doing all the things based on what the season is providing. Now, I did a whole podcast about those the fall and winter seasons. There's another podcast coming up in two more episodes about the spring and summer seasons and how we can start to transition our body for those to work with it. But cyclical rhythms are huge, huge, huge for our body. The second one is whole foods from the earth. I just mentioned this with the number one way outside of gastric bypass surgery to lower your set point is eat more whole foods. Like trash the high reward value foods, walk away from the chips and the french fries and the crackers and the popcorn and all those things and just kind of step into how can I transition my diet into a whole foods based diet? Because remember, those foods can be highly palatable without having the reward value that trashes your brain and this whole process of homeostasis. So looking more at whole foods, one easy way that you can do this is to write up a couple days of a food log. Just keep track of it, not to go back and um, critique or criticize yourself for it, but to go back and just look at different ways where it's reasonable and realistic for you to start adding more real foods into your life. Start with breakfast. What could you take out? Maybe you take out the cereal. How could you add back in some whole foods? Maybe you add a breakfast hash or you meal prep smoothie bowls on the weekend. Like you're doing something to incorporate more whole foods into your life. Now I have a handout over at Simper's Wellness, that's going to help you do this, break this down, and help you start to analyze your diet so you can use that. But just start looking. Pick one meal and start to transition that meal. And once you feel comfortable with that, then take another meal. What you often find is that it's a snowball effect. Once you start changing some things and you start to feel better, especially if you change the first meal of the day, it's going to snowball throughout the rest of your day, and you're going to make better choices. So whole foods from the earth is really one of the greatest ways to lower your set point. The next thing is to move more. Now, I'm just throwing out the basics here before we get to the end where I really want to stay and focus on for a minute. But we know that movement, right? We know that muscle is metabolically active. And again, another great way to lower that set point to boost your metabolism is to create more lean muscle mass in your body. Yes, you can do this through a lot of different diet interventions, but I think the thing that we need to be most careful of is that we're not losing muscle mass when we're losing weight, but we're losing body fat and increasing our muscle mass at the same time. And that can only be done with exercise. Now, I'm not saying that we have to do intense exercise or crazy ridiculous exercise, but just moving your body more, putting a step count on your day, like trying to get 9,000 steps or 10,000 steps or adding some hit routine into your day. It doesn't have to be a ton. In fact, some people say that's a seven-minute hit exercise, which hit means high-intensity interval training. So you're doing a short stint of 30 seconds of a high-intense exercise followed by 30 seconds of rest. And you repeat that for just seven minutes. That does more for your body than a 90-minute consistent workout. I mean, it's startling, really. But again, it all has to do with the boost in muscle mass. And so... Adding some kind of movement to your day, if nothing else, just focusing on movement. But again, it has to be something that's realistic to you. Number four is gut bacteria. 
This is really huge because our gut bacteria influences our brain and that really does change our hormonal flow. Now, there's a lot of, again, interesting research coming out. We've probably all heard a lot about it, but really getting back to how can we help our gut bacteria? How can we make it healthier? And what can we provide for it? Now, I'm not just about influxing a ton of probiotics into my my gut because, again, it has to be a balance of all different kinds. And a lot of times with probiotics, it's just a couple, a handful of different varieties of bacteria where our gut has hundreds of thousands. And so if you do a probiotic, I think it's really important to rotate that and to try different brands and different types um, and not to rely on them, to do it occasionally here or there or do it for a month and take a couple months off. Another thing that I really like is Restore, which is the, um, it creates the right environment for your own gut bacteria to flourish. But again, the thing about our gut bacteria is it's very individualized. And so everyone has a little different microbiome inside of them, and we can't really replicate it from one person to the next. And so rather than just trying to add a whole new population and expect it to survive, what if we just started to work with our gut um, and create the environment that it needs to thrive? So again, more fiber, more whole foods, uh, a bigger proponent of vegetables in the diet is going to be really, really foundational. Um, And then getting rid of highly inflammatory-causing foods like Um, gluten and dairy and sugar and alcohol and prescription medications and all the things like trying to limit those as much as possible because that is really the area where we see a lot of gut flora die and be altered. And so helping your gut bacteria. And then the last thing is emotional stress. And I really believe that this has got to be one of the biggest influencing factors in our metabolism and boosting our metabolism. Now, I did a few podcasts in the episode in the metabolism series about this. So go back and listen to it about our resistant brain and how our mindset affects our metabolism. But like I said, our mind, our thoughts, the 60,000 things that we think every day are having an enormous reaction inside our body. Like those aren't just things, but every single thought is attached to a receptor, to a a neurotransmitter that's sending out signals to our body and our body is responding. Remember, our mind is what gives our body the perception of how we're living, of our environment. It's not always the true reality, right? So just like some people can starve themselves and yet have free access to food and our body thinks that we're in real starvation mode and so it goes into conserve, right? Like it doesn't know that there's food on every single street corner in America, but that's what our body is telling it, right? Like we're perceiving this reality that the only way to lose weight is to restrict calories and so we kind of starve our body And yet our body doesn't understand that there is access to food whenever we need it. So our mindset is really playing a big, big factor in our overall health. And without having a healthy mind, we're never going to have a healthy body. I really, really, really fully believe that. Like we cannot be healthy without the healthy mindset. It might work for a little while, but long-term it's never gonna stick. So we have to make our emotional stress a huge factor. Now, when we talk about this, And the last thing that I want to make known is that there are psychological triggers to change. And I love this quote by Sam Harris. He says, our dilemma is that we hate change and we love it at the same time. What we really want is things to remain the same, but get better. Like, I'm like, how true is that? We want things to remain the same, but to get better. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, but our mindset is a big player in this and how difficult we're perceiving it to be or what we really want, what's realistic and what's not. 
And so I want to talk about this, and it comes from the book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, and it's a great book. The reason I bring this up is because I often get emails that sound like this, like my number one struggle is following through and consistency. By that, I mean I can follow any plan for a few weeks, and then my cravings and quote-unquote laziness kicks in, and I binge and eat on everything. Another person shared with me, I will be turning 49 in the next few months, and I've been trying unsuccessfully to lose weight for a long time. Another email came in and said I've gained weight but lost flexibility and it's contributing to not getting enough sleep and so the cycle continues, right? Here's a deal and this is what I'm finding and this is what I'm becoming super passionate about. You are highly educated. You know a lot. In fact, you may know more about health than I even do, right? The problem isn't a lack of information. It's implementing this information to make true and lasting change in your life. Like, it's great that I just gave you five tips. I mean, you hear those five tips. I tell you them on nearly every single podcast. The problem isn't the information. The problem is the behavior change that comes behind the information. And that is really where my passion is is lying. And that's where we're moving. How can I help you create a behavior change? Because you know the information. We all do, right? Like we know that broccoli is better than the cookie, but why do we choose the cookie, right? How can we create the behavior change where we start to love something, right? Like have you ever wondered why some people love to go to the gym and others despise it? Or why it's so hard to cut out foods even though we know they're bad for us? Like of course, it's not just a lack of willpower, but it's our behavior change. And that's where we're going this summer This fall, it actually starts in May where we're really gonna dive hard into this because I wanna help you hit the behavior change because I know you, I know that you know the right answers. You know health, you know what's right and what's wrong. This was born inside of us. Like we inherently know what is good for our bodies. We just have to get to a place where we want that, where that becomes our number one desire. And like I said, there's a great book that really defines three things that I wanna break down. And I'm not even gonna break these down fully. I'm gonna break down one and give you the other two points because we're gonna come back and revisit this. But it comes from the book Switch, which is a great book on behavior change. You should definitely read it. But the Heath brothers in this book use the metaphor of the elephant, the writer for two of the triggers, and then the jungle. So I'm gonna break down all three of them, and specifically, we're gonna talk about the writer, which I'm gonna break down first. So the writer is the rational, logical, strategic part of your brain. It's the written out diet and the exercise plan, right? The the writer is the what to do of your brain. Like this is the part of the planning and decision-making mechanism in our brain. It's the part that knows what we should be doing to achieve our goal. It's a process of learning and developing the plan that fits our individual metabolism. Most of us have great writers in check. Like we do, we're super great at this. We know that eating chocolate cake isn't the best strategy for shedding shedding fat and fitting into our genes. And we know that this is also the first step in the process. It directs your journey. The problem with the writer though, is that we allow outside influences to determine our preferences, to determine our tastes and our lifestyle, right? Like we don't just look internally, but we're looking externally to fill in our writer. Like we're good at the writer, but we're also good about others directing the writer when we need to know is that we have to take the time to create our own plan that works for individual biochemistry and lifestyle. Without this, the writer becomes nothing. To say this more simply, we can't rely on other people's ideas about what we should be doing to influence our life more than what we actually believe will work in our life to influence it. If you follow me on Instagram, this just reminds me of a quote I posted not long ago, but we 
but it says, we rarely believe what we don't tell ourselves. And again, it goes back to this, right? We can create our writer, like our decision-making part of the brain based on other people's ideas and perceptions about what we should be doing, but that rarely sticks because it's not what we're telling ourselves. We know change happens from what we tell ourselves, and that's by creating your own plan and your own individual biochemistry and lifestyle. That's what is going to matter. So I have some questions that I want you to write down or just go over to the show notes and I have all these questions for you. But when you start to think about what decisions and these things that I tell you could work in your body and could work to boost your metabolism, I want you to think about these questions and understand, is it going to work for you? Like, yes, that might work, but is it going to work for me? So these are just hypothetical questions, but I want you to think about them when it comes to the plan that you've created. And the first question is, first of all, do you have a plan? Is it a good plan? considering my life, is it a reasonable plan? Then continue to break down things and ask, like, what time will you go to the gym? What will you do when you get there? Will you only go when you feel like it? Or what are you going to buy at the grocery store? How are those foods going to make me feel? Is it realistic? Will I actually cook them or will I end up throwing them away? So I want you to start asking yourself questions. And of course, these are just the tip of the iceberg, but really start to dig in and understand, are these just ideas that other people are trying to place inside my writer? Or are these things that I actually believe to work? Because if you don't believe it, if you don't tell yourself that, you're never going to stick with it. And that makes a big difference. So we have to first understand the writer. And this is something I want you to work on in the next few months is really getting a good handle on this and the plan that you have. Because the second thing that comes into play about behavior change is what they call the elephant. And the elephant is your emotional or your animal brain. It's your heart. It involves your motivations, your deeply ingrained beliefs, habits, and emotions. This is a huge, huge part of the change formula, and it's what most people throw out the window because they don't want to deal with it, right? Like, our emotions are too hard. We should just be focusing on willpower, which we know isn't true. And if we can just stick with the plan, then we'll be fine. No, 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 no. We have to have the elephant because this is the heart behind it. This is the desire. And this is what takes you from, I have to go to the gym to, I want to go to the gym. From, I have to eat a salad to, I want to eat that salad, right? Here's the reality and what the Heath brothers say is the writer may know where it wants to go, but if the 10-foot, 12,000-pound elephant isn't on board, we don't stand a chance. If our emotions aren't in check with a plan, we don't stand a chance. If our beliefs don't line up with the plan, it doesn't stand a chance, right? The elephant is maybe the most critical element in the behavior change process and something we're going to circle back around to starting in May, so stick with me. And the final thing is considered the jungle. And this is the portion that shows how our environment can cause us to do certain things without us even noticing. We talked about this in the episode on the resistance brain, but in the book Switch, they had a great study and it was where researchers had participants come see a new movie in the theater, and with their ticket, they got the most incredible bonus gift, free popcorn. The problem was that the popcorn was three days old, and as you can imagine, it was eating like eating styrofoam. So the researchers wanted to see if the people would still eat the popcorn, and if so, how much would they eat? What they found was that over and over, no matter how disgusting the popcorn, the larger the container that the people received, the more popcorn they ate every single time. And so what it shows is that our environment whether we see it or not, is impacting our lives. 
and it's causing us to do certain things without us even noticing it. There's triggers all around us, and they're either helping us or harming us. And if we're not aware of them, then of course they can lead us to a path of destruction, right? So the jungle includes things like our friends, our family members, surroundings, and lifestyle patterns. As a Harvard psychologist and author Sean Archer calls the 22nd rule, And he asks, what would change if we could shape our environment in a way that makes bad habits just 20 seconds more inconvenient? Could we see profound changes in our behavior? And it works the other way around too. What would change if we could make good habits 20 seconds easier to perform? Would we be more likely to do them? I think those are great questions to ask. And I think all three things are critical elements in behavior change. Because what I know is that I can tell you the same things over and over and over again. And the reality is, is that you're smart. You know what you should be doing. The harder thing is, how now do we get ourselves to do this? How do we get ourselves out of these old patterns and into new patterns that last and create a jungle of success? And that's what we're going to be talking about in May. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And I hope that you are too. So for now, I want you to go back and ask yourself those questions from this podcast, from this metabolism series. What have you taken away? There's a lot of information and it doesn't mean all of it's going to work for you, but we have to start pinpointing, okay, what is it that will work for you and how can you start implementing that into your life? So I want you to first understand what are you already doing? Like I said, kind of going back and creating a food log, creating a lifestyle log of what are you doing in your daily life? What are those natural rhythms? Then I want you to start creating change around that. Create change based on what I'm encouraging you change based on what you're learning may help boost your metabolism and all the other things, right? Um, Really, all of these changes that I'm telling you help about everything else, right? Like help everything in your body to be healthier. So it doesn't matter what you pick, but what matters is that it's realistic and attainable for you. So once you have this plan in place, I want you to start asking yourself questions. Just drill yourself with questions. Is it a plan? Is it a good plan? Considering my life, is it a reasonable plan? What am I going to get at the grocery store? Am I going to eat this food? How am I going to make sure I'm going to eat this food? What time am I going to go to the gym? What am I going to do when I get there? And will I only go if I feel like it? Like start aligning your truths, your mindset for success. And I promise great changes are going to happen. So like I said, this behavior change thing, it's coming. (laughs) So if this is your first time and I totally overwhelmed you, I'm sorry, bear with me. Go back and listen to the other episodes. That's the nice thing about podcasts, right? You can binge them like a Netflix show. Go back and listen to the other episodes in the Metabolism series, and I promise it will make more sense. But then stay tuned because starting in May, we're going to talk about behavior change, and it is going to be so good. Like It's going to light a fire under us, and we are going to be people that other people recognize as making great changes in our lives and in the lives of other people. Because I believe that health is not just for us, but health is created as a way to give back and to do what we were sent on this earth, the purpose that we were given to do here. So we have to live with health, not to live for health, but to live in health so that we can do something so much greater, right? To live our purpose. And so that is why I'm so excited about health is to help you step outside of all these traps that diets place on us and this mindset of we can't do anything unless we get to our healthy weight or, um, you know, I'm not going to be confident until I get there and really start to step into who are you, start to own who you are, start to make respectable and realistic decisions based on that and really get you to a place of health so that you can then go out and do bigger and better things in the world. Health was never intended to live for, and it's a really lonely place. So if you're living there, if you're living stuck in health, 
Take some time to understand why and start to dig into what what are you here for? What is your purpose? And use that for great change. We're going to dig into all of that, so stay tuned. Like I said, that's all starting in May. But before we get there, I have so many great podcasts that I want to release, and these are just kind of like the in-between. It's a hodgepodge of a lot of different podcasts, but I'm super pumped about. We have some that are going to talk about things below the belt, um, like incontinence and Kegels. I also have a listener that's going to come on, and she's going to talk about disordered eating with me. I'm super excited And so proud of her for wanting to share her story about disordered eating and how she's gone from a place of really having an unhealthy mindset around food and her body and coming to a place of health and how she deals with that in a world that's infatuated with changes and with numbers and with body image. Um, I'm so proud of her for coming on the show and you guys are gonna wanna hear that episode. Uh, I have other podcasts about hormones and PCOS. We're gonna hear from one of the leading doctors in the country about PCOS, super fun. And really just so many other podcasts, something about cellulite and fascia. I mean, I can't list them all here because I don't wanna spoil it all, but there's a lot of good shows between now and May there's not a lot of time. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Come back every single week where I release a new podcast episode. And starting in May, I also have something fun coming out. So stay tuned. There's a lot coming up. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to go to the show notes at simperitswellness.com backslash 142 to get all the information on today's show, as well as a special download to help you in this process of healing. So check that out and don't forget to listen to all the other episodes in the Metabolism series starting with episode number 130. And while you're here, don't forget to share this podcast with other people who you think would value from it, benefit from it, and who you think would enjoy it just as much as you have. That is my goal and my mission is that this can be a place where people could come and find realistic, simple health so that they can take this, change their bodies, and then go out and live for something so much more. So thanks so much for being here and tuning in. I really, really, really do appreciate you. Don't forget to come back next week to check out the podcast on all the things happening below the belt. See you then.